0: The Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Islanders of Canada. Today's guest, Colonel Peter Daw, MSM, CD, Commander of the 2nd Canadian Mechanized Brigade
1: Group. When I first arrived in my platoon's office, Everyone was smoking in the office. We had one computer in the battalion at the time. I used to write PRs handwritten with a pencil and submit them to the clerk and the clerk would type them. So it was a different world.
0: Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. I haven't had a chance to post up an episode lately. I've been busy. Canada's been busy. A little bit of a nightmarish couple of weeks. We'll get through it. Keep our heads high. Stick to what keeps us grounded and stay close to family and friends. On that note, Mark Carlson from Iowa sent a message stating his sincere sympathies and sending his blessings to everybody in Canada. Despite the fact that things have been busy, Warrant Officer Mike Case was happy enough to reach out to me by email and kick me in the butt for not posting an episode. So thanks for keeping me on track and reminding me of my duties to get these episodes posted for you to listen to. A little bit more feedback on iTunes. Somebody left me a five-star review on iTunes. It's Mitchell Key, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, K-E-A-Y, and his feedback is entitled Just What I Was Looking For. He says, this podcast is great. The fact that it consists of interviews with current and former CF members is awesome. I especially enjoy hearing how and why these men and women enlisted originally, giving a great insight into their history and motivations. I want to extend some thanks to Mitchell for posting that review and giving me a rating, Essentially, those ratings and reviews help other people find the show. So just take a minute. I know that most of you are driving or doing something else while you're doing this, but when you get onto iTunes, take a second, post a review, give me a rating, and that just helps other people. Another person that's been very busy helping me out is Greg Briggs. He's out there hitting people up and trying to push them my way for some interviews and he's been very successful at getting some people signed up for an interview. I'm looking forward to having those episodes edited and posted for you to listen to. I know that the next couple weeks are going to be very busy for me. Despite that I'm going to try to find some time to stay on track with editing and keep things moving forward. I have some very exciting guests coming up. All my guests are very exciting. So needless to say, I'm looking forward to the guests that I do have recorded in the bank and getting them edited and posted for you to listen to. Today's guest is Colonel Peter Da, CD, and he's the commander of the 2nd Canadian Mechanized Brigade Group. 2CMBG is composed of a variety of units that are in the same brigade. So we have the Royal Canadian Dragoons, We have the 2nd Regiment of the Royal Canadian Horse Artillery, we have 2 CER, or 2 Combat Engineer Regiment, the 1st Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment, the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment in Gagetown, and the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment. They also have the 2nd Service Battalion. And of course, there is the headquarters of 2CMBG as well. The home of the 2nd Mechanized Canadian Brigade Group is Garrison Petawawa. Wait a second, Garrison Petawawa? Hang on a sec. They changed the name. Wow. All right. So it's not CFB Petawawa. It's Garrison Petawawa. Someone went out and changed the name on that. So hopefully they tear down all the signs and put up some fresh signs telling everybody the new name. I'm just kidding. I knew the name was changed. I'm just fooling around. Anyhow, Colonel Daw came to be known to me by virtue of being appointed as Brigade Commander, but also by being friends with Greg Briggs. And Greg Briggs is one of the people that helped make a connection and getting Colonel Daw on the show. As a platoon commander, Colonel Daw served in the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry and specifically in Recce Platoon with Greg Briggs. If you're interested in hearing more about Greg, you can go to Episode 2 and listen to his episode all the way back at the beginning of this project. This is starting to sound like the Greg Briggs history podcast, but that's not so. So let's hear from the commander of 2CMBG, Colonel Peter Daw. Colonel Daw, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be part of this. I think it's a great endeavor, and I'm happy to help, and I'm frankly, I'm honored that you would ask.
0: Thanks, sir. So you and I first met at the Land Force Central Area SPS in the fall of 2013, when you first took command of the 2nd Canadian Mechanized Brigade Group.
1: That's right, Mike. It was an interesting time for me, as you can imagine, as a member of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry and and a guy who's spent most of my career out west being granted the tremendous opportunity to command the brigade in Petawawa. It was just uh, it was pretty incredible. But to be honest, a little bit daunting because I came in not knowing many of the characters and not certainly not being as familiar with the lay of the land as I would have been in a similar appointment in Edmonton. What I soon discovered is at the end of the day, uh, notwithstanding regimental affiliations and minor regional idiosyncrasies, soldiers are soldiers. Absolutely. And certainly what I've commented on over the past year is I firmly believe that our shared experiences over the past 12 years in Afghanistan, I think, did a great deal in terms of, I think, realigning the way the Army does business and bringing us probably closer together than we've ever been in many respects. Although there are still minor regimental differences and nuances in terms of how we do business, (laughs) I would say we have a lot more in common than not. And ultimately, the transition to Petawawa for me into 2 Brigade was, I like to think, pretty seamless. My troops might say otherwise, (laughs) but (laughs) I certainly have enjoyed it a great deal. And I must say that one of the keys to that, from my perspective, is being twinned with an RCR Sergeant Major, Brigade Sergeant Major, right? As you can imagine, having my fire team partner as someone who spent the bulk of his career here in Petawawa and who knows all the personalities and can make me smart on regimental traditions and whatnot is a great force multiplier for me.
0: Well, Sergeant Major Ambrose Penton was one of the section commanders on my own infantry section commanders course, Mm -hmm. and he's come up already on the podcast. He was mentioned by Chief Warrant Officer Carl DeRoche.
1: Yeah, he is a tremendous individual, a tremendous soldier, and sadly he had to move on in February sooner than we had anticipated. But the time I spent with him was invaluable. Just a great guy. One of these individuals who's very much admired and he's just salt of the earth, no pretensions, you know what I mean, and and so easy to work with, but also courageous in many respects and certainly does not hesitate to speak truth to power, which is, a commander is precisely what you want. And then that weren't enough, and his successor, Chief War Officer Keith Olstad, has proven to be very much of that ilk as well. Smart, fit, pleasure to work with, great people skills, 28 years of soldiering, most of which, like I said, he's done here with the exception of a couple of years in Germany, he's done in Petawawa, so knows the brigade inside and out and knows all the personalities and brings to his appointment a great deal of credibility and knowledge and experience. Again, I've just been so blessed to be able to work with soldiers like that.
0: Absolutely, sir. Just to touch on one of the points you brought up earlier, I think that doesn't matter what rank you hold, there's always a little bit of trepidation when you're asked to work outside your own cap badge. And I think the ability to overcome that hesitation or that fear is what makes soldiers excel, regardless of what rank they are, what trade they are, or what badge they wear initially.
1: Yeah, Mike, one of the things I often tell young leaders is if you don't get a little nervous every once in a while or if you don't <laughs> fear failure, I think there's probably something wrong with you because then you probably don't take your job seriously. Enough. If you really care about what you do, I think it's inevitable that on occasion you're going to feel a little bit stressed, a little bit overwhelmed, but I think what we foster in in this line of work and what we train for is that ability to overcome that. But that trepidation, you know, that fear of failure, is, if you can harness that, is a tremendous thing. It keeps you sharp,
0: right? Absolutely.
1: And if you can overcome that, and then and like I said, if you can channel that in a, in a positive manner, then I think it's a great thing to have. And so I don't like becoming... I, my fear is complacency. My fear is not fear itself. It's, it's becoming too comfortable because then I, I suspect I'm probably missing the mark. I'm probably becoming a little bit lazy because that's just human nature, right? Certainly. And so it's, it's good to think every once in a while, energize yourself and, and to remain focused. And I absolutely agree that it's not only normal to feel a, a little bit of a trepidation. I can guarantee you that there are days when the chief of defense staff feels a little bit overwhelmed and stressed. <laughs> clearly, someone of that kind of talent and, and experience has clearly mastered the art of channeling that energy, that rush, if you will, that adrenaline to produce. That's how we, we overcome it.
0: Absolutely, sir. So I sent you the questions in advance. Are you ready to go? Yeah, I think so. So why don't you tell the listeners, sir, why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces?
1: Well, my route to the military, Mike, was a very circuitous one, I would say. I was, I was 20 years old. As I put it, I was a failed hockey player, so I played a couple of years of major junior hockey in the Quebec League. And as is the case with probably 99% of major junior hockey players, I ended up without an NHL contract. So I found myself at 19 uh, looking around and, and considering my options. In my case, my father had served for 32 years, was still in at the time. And although I never really, frankly, expressed much interest in the military, at least I had something that I could refer to. I had that example sort of on my periphery, if you will. And so when push came to shove and I found myself without a job, I looked at my dad and looked at the example that I thought he set. He seemed to be a fit, smart guy with what appeared to be a very rewarding career. He was a military engineer, like I said, for 32 years, someone who I obviously still admire very much to this day. And so it was ultimately a pretty easy choice. So I went to the recruiting Center, frankly, looking for a job that where I thought I would get paid to do exciting things and to stay fit and to serve my country, not knowing for one second that I would be spending virtually the rest of my adult life in uniform. I mean, I, I thought maybe I would have a three, five-year career or whatever it is, but <laughs> as intended to happen. I just got in the right job at the right time, working for some terrific people. One thing led to another, and here I am 24 years later.
0: Absolutely. So what was the world like when you joined? What year was that?
1: So it was December of 1990, 20 years old. It was the end of the Cold War, right? The new world order was sort of being defined, if you will, so it was very much a period of transition, although as a 20-year-old joining, I certainly didn't appreciate what was going on. But I do recall distinctly watching the start of the Gulf War during my basic training in the winter of 91. So it was a fascinating time. And I think in many respects, it was. It ended up being quite fortuitous that I would join at that time with everything that would occur over the next decade in terms of the whole Canada's engagement in peacekeeping operations, particularly in the Balkans. And then, of course, what happened sort of post 11. So without getting too far ahead of myself, let's just say it was an interesting time to join. What it meant on the ground when you were joining, though, was that it was still the Army of old. It was populated with many veterans of the Cold War, great soldiers who had served in Germany. But it was a different time. As I like to explain to my young subalterns, when I first arrived in my platoon office, everyone was smoking in the office. We had (laughs) one computer in the battalion at the time. I used to write PERS handwritten with a pencil and submit them to the clerk, and the clerk would type them. So it was a different world, not all bad, just different. And of course, as we started to deploy more frequently overseas, and we sort of started to amend, I suppose, our perspective somewhat. We are in our training plans and, and the way we did business. And then, of course, we also eventually got caught up to the digital age, and, and which obviously fundamentally changed the way we did business, yeah, you know, even you know, within the field force. So it gives a bit of a snapshot of where we were back then, Mike. Right?
0: Absolutely. And what were you like when you joined? You already touched on your aspiring failed hockey career, but what else?
1: Well, I would say, yeah, I mean, looking back, I would say that I think in some respects, I I guess I I was relatively mature as a 20-year-old, only by virtue of the fact that I'd been away from home for about five years already by then, playing hockey and doing that, living on my own, or at least billeting with families, but away from my family. So that part of it was not much of a challenge for me. But I certainly wasn't mature in a sophisticated way. I mean, I, just by virtue of, again, of my hockey experiences and my focus on hockey, I very much neglected much of my formal schooling. So I'd, I'd, I'd finished my high school, started a little bit of CJEP by then, but I hadn't gone to university yet, and frankly, just hadn't engaged in a whole lot of formal academics beyond the high school level. So uh, I was a bit of a clean slate joining, but just very eager, and, and I think uh, pretty fit. I acquired some experiences by virtue of living away from home for, for quite a while, so was able to make that transition, I think, reasonably well in basic training, but instantly fell in love with it, I think. I don't think I was the best soldier coming out of the gates because I just <laughs> I hadn't done cadets, so I didn't know how to spit shine or, or iron very well. Those were not my fortes, but I think that I probably displayed a reasonably good degree of, I would call it probably informal leadership. Right. That ability just to talk to people and to motivate them to do things, which I think is pretty common amongst athletes who played highly right. competitive Absolutely. sports and, you know, just been exposed to that kind of environment.
0: So did you join as an officer, sir? Or did you join as an NCM?
1: No, I joined on the officer cadet training program. So I joined without a degree with the understanding the implication that i would get my degree on my own time in due course it wasn't as formal as it is now now i think if you join that route that entry program they have a fixed timeline by which you need to have your degree right but when i joined many officers didn't have degrees and that's very much changed significantly since then right was just, it was again it was a different army so like i said i joined without a degree went straight to basic training And I joined as an artillery officer initially, went from my basic training in Chilwack straight to Gagetown and did my phases two, three, four, back to back to back over the course of the year and was commissioned. So from January of 91 to March of 92, finished all of my phases, was commissioned in March of 92 and joined what was then 3RCHA in Shiloh. And they were of course, renumerated to 1RCHA that summer when uh, 1RCHA was repatriated.
0: So what was the genesis for this jump into the infantry?
1: To be frank, based on discussions with my dad and he knowing my sort of strengths and weaknesses, he had recommended the infantry. He had basically told me, listen, knowing you and, and, and knowing what you're about, you'd probably, if you're going to do this, probably decide to go infantry and go in full bore here and, and do some hard soldier, which obviously resonated with me. And when I joined uh, as an OCTP fellow, the way it worked then was you would just get I got a phone call and they said listen we have an opening in the artillery and we know it's not your, your number one choice but if it, it is combat Army then you can join So obviously I jumped at that did my phase training and that went reasonably well and, and deployed to Cyprus as a troop commander with one RCHA. but while I was deployed in Cyprus I heard the news that the infantry was desperately looking for young officers and that they would entertain requests for reclassification from other trades. So I submitted my request and got it and then in the summer of 9'3, Upon redeployment from Cyprus, I proceeded straight on to Phase 3 Infantry in down as a qualified lieutenant uh, artillery lieutenant, so, which is not a very common thing. But probably in my case, again, looking back and knowing my strengths and weaknesses, was probably the best move I ever made because I think I, I'm convinced that I'm a better infantry officer than I would have been uh, as an artillery officer in the long return.
0: Right. And your artillery experience would help you when you're calling in fire missions as an infantry officer.
1: Well, absolutely. It's not like it was wasted time at all. I mean, it just gave me a whole bunch of qualifications and exposure to different things that I never would have had otherwise. And so I, I think it's funny how these things work out. Like I said, sometimes a little more securitist route can be very beneficial. And certainly in this case, I believe it was.
0: Certainly. What is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces, sir, or your greatest achievement?
1: Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, I, I don't like to speak in terms of personal achievements, but certainly I, I think... If I look back now, after 24 years in, I would probably say the most memorable experience for me would have been my, my deployment with 3PPCLI Battle Group on Operation Apollo in 2002 to Kandahar, right? That was the first Canadian Conventional Force deployment to Afghanistan. And we really felt at the time that we were part of something important, and, and it was very new and groundbreaking in many respects, and conducting the first combat air assault that anyone could ever recall in, in the Canadian context and certainly since Korea. And as as a young major at the time, I was the operations officer, and and I was the one crafting these plans based on the CO's intent on field message pad sheets. Kind of surreal. And when I look back at that, I'm very grateful to have been part of that. We just had a tremendous team. It was a a really well-led organization. There were incredible soldiers in that crew, and I think we accomplished a great deal and, and really set the tone for Canada's near 12-year engagement in that country, and I, I think it was just very grateful to have been part of that, and not to mention the fact that we were also embedded within an American brigade, the RACASAN, so they called, a brigade within the 101st, with the famous 101st Airborne Division. It was a, just a great experience. Something all always, uh, I think, cherish very much.
0: Well, that definitely sounds memorable, sir. Who is your greatest influence or who's the most memorable character that you've encountered? And I know that one of the routes to get you onto this podcast was by a memorable character that we both know.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I've had the great pleasure of running into a bunch of memorable characters throughout my career. There are many, but I'll try to list a few. I think the when I look back at my time as a young subaltern in the second battalion. That was my first regimental posting to the Patricia's in Winnipeg where I commanded a platoon in the Charlie Company and then I went on to command the reconnaissance platoon where I met our common friend, Mr. Briggs there. He's <laughs> a wonderful individual. One of many, by the way, from that unit. I look back at those uh, formative years as uh, as being probably my favorite. They were just, just a tremendous time I had. We were so well led. And we had such terrific troops in that unit, and uh, and my peer group was absolutely exceptional. So, And it started from the top. It started, we had a, a CO by the name of John Turner, who today is Associate Deputy Minister of Materiel in d and a very talented individual. And then one of my first company commanders was a gentleman by the name of Shane Brennan, who's a Brigadier General today, and, and just one of my favorite people I've ever met. And then uh, another one of my company commanders was a guy by the name of Jake Bell, who's who's still in the reserves to this day as a colonel and just a, another great guy. But within my peer group, I mean, we had, I was the senior subaltern at one point. I think it was in 95, 96. There was Nick Grimshaw, who was just relinquished Chris Command of the First Battalion. There was Bill Fletcher, who was awarded the SMV in Afghanistan as a colonel now. Michael Wright, who was an MMD MSM recipient from Afghanistan as a full colonel as well. And this is just from a small peer group of subalterns at that time in the unit. And to get a sense for the kind of talent that was there, but I don't—not only talent, but just uh, great, great people. And we had a great social life, and uh, we worked hard, we played hard. I think the which that existed in that unit between. The non-commissioned members and the officers was tremendous and it's something that I think resonated with me very much and I think that very much shaped my own leadership style for the remainder of my career and I I very much tried to model myself after what I had experienced. I really very much tried to replicate that when I was an OC and a a CO and and to this day as a brigade commander. It was just, it was a great atmosphere. You knew that people respected each other and were willing to go to Mm -hmm. bat for each other and and like I said, we had a whole lot of fun doing it and when the chips were down, we, we got the job done very well. That was probably my most, I've listed a few of my most important influences there. Later on in my career, I can cite examples of very colorful individuals like Sergeant Major Billy Bolin, who just recently retired, who was my course warrant on my Pathfinder course and then ended up being my CQ when I was an OC and then also my my Sergeant Major and about as colorful as they'll ever get Can use expletives in a very colorful way, (laughs) in a very imaginative way but more importantly is just the consummate soldier, a guy who taught me so much about soldiering and leadership in his own way that I'm, I'm forever indebted to him, and I just had a great time with him, and, and some of those experiences that he and I shared together I, I will always cherish. So there, I could go on for a long time, but those are, are just a few of the individuals with whom I've had a great pleasure to soldier with.
0: Well, I know Greg Briggs speaks about his time in recce platoon with great fondness as well, and I know that he really hated to leave that organization or that group or that team. And it was really heartbreaking for him to move on, but he had to move on anyways.
1: Yeah, Greg Riggs, I think in many ways, was actually quite, he was kind of almost prototypical of what we had in 2VB at the time. We, he was just funny and smart and fit. And one of these guys, as a corporal, displayed more poise and maturity and smarts than any junior officer. Just very impressive. I and mean, so that was such an easy, frankly, an easy platoon to command. Intimidating in some respects, because they were so smart that you always knew <laughs> that and uh, And funny that you you know always get your your chops busted a little bit, but also just a pleasure to work with
0: absolutely, sir. We've come to the last question. What was the greatest challenge you had to overcome? I know this spring has been very challenging for you
1: as well. I found yeah, we we deployed as a brigade an exercise in April resolve this past spring. And I have to say that you know I've been on a far tougher um, exercises from a physical perspective i I had a, the pleasure of taking part in some pretty the pleasure the the pleasure I suppose of taking part in some pretty challenging training in the past but never I don't think have I felt so taxed uh, mentally uh, as I did as uh, commanding a brigade it was tremendous but what what was even more important and what was even what really came to the fore was how, again how fortunate I am to be surrounded by the incredibly talented people that work here in the brigade and uh, including the field and the troops the whole way down it was just such a pleasure to watch with just uh, a little bit of Reasonably well-articulated intent to be able to watch 4,000 people executing the plan as, uh, as masterfully as they did was just probably one of the more gratifying things I've ever taken part of. And again, it just reminded me again of how incredibly fortunate we are in the Canadian forces to have these types of people at all ranks, you know, doing the business and serving the country so well. So that's from a professional perspective. On a more personal level, there's no doubt that losing some of my friends in Afghanistan and and having to deal with that and and losing a troop as a commander. When I was deputy commander of the training mission in Afghanistan, some of the toughest moments I've ever had to deal with. And even more personally than that, I would say losing my kid brother in 07 overseas and then having to deal with that from a personal but also a professional perspective because it was a bit of a come-to-Jesus moment there in terms of why I was doing what I was doing and whether uh, it was still a fit. But uh, once I dealt with that, it was a a bit of a no-brainer in terms of why we do what we do, and it was if anything, it it, it sort of re-energized me.
0: So what's next for you, sir, and what's next for 2CMBG?
1: Well, the brigade is very busy this year doing what we call continuation training, right? So we were declared operationally ready for potential deployment on the 1st of July, and we will remain in the breach until same time next year and so in the interim we have a bunch of training that we need to do just to stay ready for any eventuality and what I've directed the brigade should focus on this year especially in particular this fall is night operations and also working on our air mobile skills and what we're very fortunate to have here in Petawawa is that we're co-located with the newly stood up 450 squadron who have a bunch of training they need to accomplish anyway to achieve their final operational capability there are great efficiencies to be achieved between two CMEG and four fifty squadrons, so everything's lining up very well. And I think we're going to have a very challenging but also very rewarding fall as we look to refine those skill sets. Those very important skill sets—they can really set you up for success on deployments overseas. They're very relevant and uh, very important, and probably something we need to do a little bit more of. So, uh, looking forward to that this fall. And then on a personal level, we'll see what the future holds for me next year. I don't like to dwell on that a whole lot. I'm just savoring it in the moment because, frankly, in our Army, there aren't too many field command opportunities beyond brigade. So it's about as good as it gets from here on in for me. So I'm just uh, cherishing uh, every day I have in this appointment until, uh, until next summer.
0: Sir, is there anything you'd like to say just to summarize your episode?
1: Well, I mean, I guess most there is one thing, Mike, I would say is that when I look back uh, at all of my experiences and my time in, I can't but help but feel a great sense of gratitude to the institution because when I think of where I was when I joined and, and what I've been able to experience and acquire and how I've been able to grow as a, as an individual, I attribute the vast majority of that to my experiences in the military and to the tremendous people with whom I've had the opportunity to work. It's as though when you're surrounded by such high caliber people day in and day out, you can't help but improve. It's almost like a, it's like osmosis. <laughs> you're able to watch and see what right looks like and to, and to pick up on those cues and to learn and to develop as a, as a soldier, but also as a human being. I'm just very grateful for these experiences. I can't even consider what life would have been like had I not walked into that recruiting center 24 years ago. So I'm just very grateful. It hasn't always been easy, but it sure uh, as hell has been um, gratifying. Very, uh, very proud of my my time in the military and just uh, very grateful for all those uh, great relationships and experiences that I've had.
0: Sir, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be a guest on the show. I especially like hearing about the experiences that I've only heard about through my friend Greg Briggs, but also from your point of view. And I look forward to working with you in the upcoming months.
1: Thanks, Mike. It's, it's been a pleasure. It's uh, it's actually been um, enjoyable to relive some of these experiences. And I suppose to put my, my 24 years in uniform into a little bit of perspective, it's uh, it's probably a, a healthy thing to take stock every once in a while. So I actually uh, I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thank you, sir. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at MikeLacroixCMHP at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, Please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.